Welcome to Ballot Battleground Nevada. I'm your host, Ben Marjot, a reporter at KRNV News 4 in Reno. I'm passionate about making politics in this critical battleground state more digestible to the average voter, pushing past the talking points to press politicians for answers. On this show, we take deep dives into the people, ideas, and debates shaping Silver State politics. In the presidential election, Nevada isn't just a battleground, it's a pure toss-up. Don't take my word for it, that's the official race rating from the Cook Political Report, one of the most well-respected election forecasters in the United States. We're one of just six states that is essentially a coin toss come November. Our six electoral votes, not a lot, sure, but hugely important, especially in a race that could come down to the wire. That's why we thought to set the stage for 2024, we'd bring on the Cook Political Report to talk about the landscape in the Silver State, not just for that presidential election, but also our critically important U.S. Senate race. Here's our conversation with their Senate and Governor Editor, Jessica Taylor. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Ballot Battleground Nevada. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. For our listeners who might not know, what is the Cook Political Report and what do you guys do? We are a nonpartisan political analysis and handicapping organization. We are very small. Um, I think right now we have about seven people on staff, seven, eight people. Um, but this is our 40th anniversary. We were founded in 1984 by Charlie Cook, who's sort of the godfather of political handicapping and really sort of made this into an industry our accuracy record is um, very high. And, you know, so we rate races as whether they're solid, you know, likely Democrat or likely Republican. Lean is a more competitive category. And then toss-up means that it really could go either way, that we see it as the most competitive of races. And so in addition to that, we provide detailed analysis and data of each state and of each race. Gotcha. And for our listeners who might not know, I mean, the Cook Political Report is really something that journalists and campaigns all across the country rely on to get a sense of uh, which way the winds are blowing politically, which states are truly competitive, which states might be not so competitive, which uh, brings us to Nevada. I mean, it's really the reason that we're calling it ballot Battleground Nevada, because Nevada is a true battleground in elections, or at least it has been for 10 or 15 years now. From your perspective, Jessica, why is that? I think that Nevada is an interesting representation of sort of the change across the country we've seen in many states. And to me, Nevada is interesting because it, it of course, is a very high Hispanic population, um, about a quarter of the vote, but still um, a large uh, non-Hispanic white population. And, you know, there are some more college-educated voters, but there's still so many non-college educated white voters as well. And that's clearly where we have seen Republicans and particularly Donald Trump make inroads. And there's obviously still a very large union presence. It's a state that's been hit very hard economically. You know, you look back to the pandemic because it's a state that was uniquely dependent upon tourism in Las Vegas, especially in Reno. And it's also a state that's a very transient state. So you do have some more conservative people leaving places like California and moving there. You know, a quarter to half of the electorate turns over from every cycle to cycle. So it's also hard for politicians there to become well-known or cemented in a way because you have so many new voters moving in. Let's start with the House, which I know you're focused on Senate and governor's races, but just to kind of get that one out of the way, since it's not exactly in your wheelhouse, I mean, you guys have rated the four congressional districts in Nevada. 
I talked about this on a previous episode that had to do with redistricting, but as it stands right now, you guys say that not one of our four congressional districts is a true toss-up. Uh, Democrats redrew the lines a few years ago to make like Congressional District 1 a little less blue, the other Southern Nevada districts a little more blue. And so as a result, none of those right now are toss-ups, right? Yeah. So the the main competitive one we have is the third district there. That one is rated um, lean Democrat, currently held by Lee there. And then we do have um, Nevada 1 and Nevada 4, both in our likely Democrat column. So of those, um, Nevada 3 would be the most competitive, followed by 1 and a 4. And let's move on to the Senate now, because that is right in your wheelhouse where incumbent Jackie Rosen, um, the Democratic senator in her first term, you guys have rated that as a lean Democratic seat. And I saw on your website, and, and we know this here in Nevada, she's the only first term Democratic senator who is actually up for reelection in a state that you guys consider competitive. So how have you guys landed on lean Democratic for, for that seat? I think... When we look, though, at so this is a, I think we have to take the Senate map in totality. And this is a Senate map where every other single state that Democrats are on de- defense in. Um, so Montana went for Trump twice, 16 points in 2020. Ohio went twice for Donald Trump by eight points each time. You know, Arizona, a state that Trump won in 2016 and Biden won very narrowly in in uh, 2020. Of the battleground states, again, other ones like Michigan and Wisconsin, you have Trump won it, then Biden won it. Pennsylvania, Trump won it, then Biden won it. This is the only state that the Democrat Clinton in 2016 and then Biden in 2020 has carried twice. And we saw the Democratic percentage go up from 2016 to 2020, but we also saw that Trump increased his percentage here. So it was really here and one other state in Florida. And didn't mean that he won it, but he did increase his performance there in, in a way as well. And I think we saw in exit polling that Republicans did make inroads with Hispanic voters. But I think the caution that we have here is that we saw how much candidates mattered in 2022. You know, Laxalt really didn't have much of a primary, was sort of anointed from the beginning. But there were a lot of qualms with sort of the campaign that he ran, especially when you compare that to Lombardo being able to win in the same cycle. Because Sisolak was the only Democratic governor that was ousted as well. So that was huge. So you sort of saw a split decision happening in Nevada. And Nevada was also the closest race that we had that actually I thought going into Election Day last year that Republicans were going to win. And I think if they had done a better job like Lombardo's campaign did at getting out the early vote um, and not, you know, Republicans have tended to be more skeptical of early voting. But I think Democrats, it still showed us that, you know, the Harry Reid machine, even though he has since passed away, he created the modern Democratic Party in Nevada. And that organization, those unions, powerful unions like the Culinary Union and different things, the Democrats still, even without him, were able to do that. And you also had, I think, two very weak state parties last time, too, which was interesting that the Reed camp, the Reed machine sort of had to create a shadow Democratic Party out of Washoe. And to me, a place like Washoe is, you know, you have to at least be competitive in Clark County, which is, of course, the largest there. And I think that's why you saw Lombardo had a chance there because he'd been elected there before. But it's Washoe that sort of is the ultimate swing area that we see there. And so, you know, with the primary as it is now, certainly Sam Brown, who ran second to um, to 
Laxalt in that race last time, but I think he's still a little bit of an unproven candidate. Um, so we have started it in this sort of because of those reasons, because it doesn't sort of match up the most competitive states that we have, like Montana and Ohio. But does that mean it cannot inch up there? It absolutely could. I think just based on some of the candidate quality issues we had last time, until we see these primaries and how these candidates evolve and are able to win or to not win, um, it doesn't merit inclusion in our most competitive category just yet. Appreciate that explanation because you look at the results from 2022 and you see that Catherine Cortez Masto beat Adam Laxalt by fewer than 8,000 votes. I mean, it was just an absolutely razor thin margin. And so you would think, oh, this race must automatically be a toss up as well. And that's not exactly the case. Yeah, this early on, we kind of I kind of have to look at the map until we know who the candidates are and how they're proven, which we're starting primary start, you know, in just two weeks. Well, finally, for statewide primaries with Super Tuesday and then Ohio. So we'll have Nevada in June. So I think after that primary, I think we would be making a new evaluation as we see polling more in the race. And also this early on, we just don't have a lot of polling. And, and so really it is sort of a categorization of we have to acknowledge that a place like Montana and a place like Ohio that Republicans have won twice in the recent presidential elections is going to be higher on their list and is going to be more competitive than a state that, albeit narrowly, about by about the same 2.5% margin, but Democrats have carried it in both of the re- most recent presidential elections. And then you have to go back to George W. Bush to find a Republican that carried it in the presidential election. Explain to for our listeners, these ratings change, obviously. What causes these things to change? I mean, you mentioned one of them being finding out who the Republican nominee will be. What are some other things that cause these to shift? You know, there's no one formula that we use. We look at it both qualitatively and quantitatively. So we're talking with a lot of sources on the ground. And because we sort of have a different, you know, I was a reporter for 15 years before I sort of switched into doing this more analysis. So all a lot of us have either political or more repertorial backgrounds. So, you know, I still look at what I do as reporting and see myself as a journalist, but we are resources for journalists, as you mentioned. So going on things like this. So it is both sort of an analytical and a journalistic role. So we look at things quanti- qualitatively where I will talk with sources, but they can be a little freer to talk with us because they can talk on background or off the record and things. They know they're not going to get quoted directly in a story. So a lot of times that enables them to be more upfront and free with us and really tell us what's going on than they might tell, you know, a traditional newspaper reporter in, in that regard. And I think our deep sourcing that all of us have has has contributed to our reputation and makes us one of the best out there. And then we do look at quantitative data. And at this point, it's just so early for the quantitative data that, again, once we get the nominees, and as I mentioned, one of the things that's hard with Nevada is that it's hard for a candidate to get known. Even though Rosen is a first time, she's been in office for six years, you know, she had a very rapid rise in politics. When I look at someone like Catherine Cortez Masto that had won statewide office before, had served as attorney general. But Rosen went very quickly from being a synagogue president to being a member of the House of Representatives to then running for Senate in the next cycle. So she has had a very rapid rise. And what I have seen is that she is not as well known as someone like Cortez Masto, but both of them struggled in unique ways just because the state is so transient. And that's what I think when I look at all of these other states that makes Nevada really unique when I compare it to other swing states. Given that what 
you just mentioned a lot of the work you guys do, talking to sources, talking to campaign managers, um, political analysts on the ground in the states. I mean, how do the campaigns see Nevada? I, I do think when I'm talking with people, I think there is some still reservation about wanting to see how this map develops. And when I look at the other races, so we have three races rated toss up right now, and that's in Arizona, which we don't know if that's going to be a two way race or a three way race. And then Montana and and Ohio. And then there are three other races in that toss in that lean Democrat column, um, an open seat in Michigan, a seat in Wisconsin and a seat in Pennsylvania. And so I, I think, again, it's sort of murky right now of and I, it depends on what types of candidates emerge in those races, what types of candidates emerge in this race that it's just too early. I've had people, can you rank them for me? I hesitate to do that because <laughs> frankly, I don't have all of the information yet when I don't know who the candidates are and how they're going to perform. And, you know, I think Sam Brown early on, there was some hesitancy um, about some of his fundraising and, and different things, but I think he is, and I was even hearing, you know, that there was a push to get another candidate and one that might be able to self-fund or something. But I have heard that decrease in recent months. And, you know, the NRA, the National Republican Senatorial Committee has endorsed him. But I think also I have to look at it as, okay, with where Republicans are right now, we have to also factor in that West Virginia is now an open seat with Joe Manchin not running. And that is a seat that went from toss-up to solid Republicans. So that is a seat that Republicans all but certainly will flip. If they win only Wisconsin, only West Virginia and don't flip any of these other seats, but a Republican wins the White House, then Republicans already have the majority. So they're just trying to get to that 50% or 51 And like I said, they're better targets than Nevada just looking at it. Does that mean that Nevada is not a target? No, it absolutely is. But you do kind of have to look at this as like a game of inches. What is what is going to be there? There's just, you know, there's strategy involved in this as there's as Republicans and Democrats are looking at the cold hard numbers. And so, you know, even when I look at the presidential numbers, you look at the past history in a state like Wisconsin absolutely should be more competitive. We, but Republicans only got a candidate in there today, finally. <laughs> Michigan, an open seat should happen, but there's a very messy Republican primary happening there. Now, they don't have a primary in Pennsylvania, and Republicans have landed a very top flight recruit in David McCormick. But Pennsylvania is a state where Biden is performing slightly better than some of the other states. And then you look at the presidential numbers in Nevada, and they do look very different at least right now. But again, that's very early. And, you know, is this going to be more of a referendum on Biden or is it going to be a referendum on Trump? We've also had never had a presidential election unless you go back 100 years that has had a current president and a former president that are both kind of de facto incumbents and where that happens. Where is the economy in Nevada? Um, When you look at mortgage rates, when you look at inflation, when you look at how dependent the state is upon tourism um, and gaming and everything. So it is, it's a state with a very unique economic makeup and economic reliance, I think, on tourism and gaming. But again, it is a state where one of one of the most important issues right now is immigration. And, you know, you all aren't right there at the border, but you're very close to it. You know? mm-hmm. So it still remains um, an issue, I think. And then again, are Republicans able to make inroads with Hispanic voters as well? And what kind of new voters are moving into the state? You know, the fact that I look at even the registration trends and we have seen Republican registration slightly increase while Democratic registration has gone down. But the plurality 
um, of voters are still in that, you know, no party preference independent block. And so winning those over is what is key. It does make it a little harder to see maybe the trends because, yeah, there are so many nonpartisans in our state right now. But uh, let's segue into the presidential. And then as we saw okay. in the presidential primary or, you know, you all have the unique no, <laughs> no one, one option. Right. So that can factor in and it has factored in. You know, yeah. so how does that impact races as well? You think about Catherine Cortez Masto winning by less than 8,000 votes last time. I mean, that is a, a fraction where... N- 10,000 people vote none of these candidates, it could potentially swing a race. And that's obviously probably impossible to predict uh, from a polling standpoint. But let's segue into the presidential race because we have six electoral votes, not a ton, but obviously an outsized importance um, compared to some other states, just given how the Electoral College works. We, as of right now, are one of six states that you guys have rated as true toss-up. Previously in that lean Democratic category, but you guys changed that back in December along with Michigan. How come that change? I think it was just the persistent polling that just showed it more competitive. You know, again, we sort of looked at historically both of those states in recent elections, Michigan having overwhelmingly reelected, not well, I mean, comfortably reelected a Democratic governor that, you know, again, at the state, some of the state level elections, you know, when we look at where Nevada has been not only at the presidential, but when we look at those federal races and the fact that, again, governor's races can poll a little bit differently than Senate races, at a federal level, it certainly seemed like Nevada should be more blue. Right. It's been 20 years, two decades since Nevada has chosen a Republican nominee. Yeah. But then you see some of the polling consistently coming out um, that has Biden behind and where his approval rating is in the state. And so does that mean polls are a snapshot in time, but we have to also look at the data that we have right now. And the data shows a lot of problems for for President Biden there in the state, even though he won won it once and then Hillary Clinton won it twice, won, won it in 2016. So I think it was a lot driven by the polling that just showed this as an increasingly closer race. Just looking at the polling, obviously, as we're recording this, it is late February, so few general election polls, but there are a couple. What are you gleaning from those so far? So we haven't seen a ton recently out of Nevada. Ones that we did see, a morning consult Bloomberg one that came out middle of January showed Trump with an eight-point lead, 48% to 40% for Biden. We had an Emerson College one that showed Trump up three, Biden at 39, Trump at 42 you know, all of these are certainly a warning sign, but I will say one thing to me, it, it, this right now still feels like Biden is the incumbent. Trump was the incumbent, but I think how much Biden and them can make this about Trump, because a lot of his numbers there are not that different from the percentage of vote he got. So in 2016, he got 45.5% of the vote um, Biden or Trump did. He increased that to 47.76%. So when we look back at where he's polling, he's not getting much higher than that, like 47, 48. Is that enough to win when you you have potentially third-party candidates in the race, seeing if they make the ballot? Um, Cornel West, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And then, like I said, you all have that unique none of the above option. So how does that factor in? So I think when we looked at Biden's numbers specifically, it was hard to say that this was a place where you could see him as the 
as at least a slight favorite. So that sort of led to our decision when we when combination of the state polling, but also more of a referendum on where Biden's numbers are in some of these states and Michigan and Nevada at that time fell into that column. Looking back to 2022, I remember full Senate control was decided by Catherine Cortez Masto winning Nevada just the way that cards fell on that Saturday or Sunday when the race was officially called because Nevada's still counting ballots for several days as mail ballots trickle in. And so it sounds like with both the Senate race and the presidential race with the Electoral College that we could potentially be in a similar situation again where Nevada is hugely important at the end of the day for uh, this upcoming 2024 election. Yeah, like you said, it's key in the battle for the Senate when every seat matters when you're looking at such a slim majority. And again, it may only be six electoral votes, but those six electoral votes matter when you look at the grand scheme of things. And, you know, I, uh, John Ralston there always, he says, you know, we matter and Nevada does matter. It matters in many regards. And I think it is a state that is more representative of the state of the country as a whole. Like I said, it has so many different unique factors that it absolutely is a state that I watch for natural, for national trends. Well, we'll definitely be following along as you guys continue to analyze the Senate race here, the presidential race here over the next several months. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on this episode of Ballot Battleground Nevada. We appreciate your time. Thank you for having me. I love that chat with Jessica Taylor of the Cook Political Report. Nevada is such a unique state and critically important in the national landscape. But of course, a friendly reminder, it is still very early. There's a lot of time for all these dynamics we just talked about to change before November. If you made it to the end of this episode, I really appreciate it. If you have guest ideas, episode ideas, questions, comments, compliments, concerns, anything at all, feel free to shoot us an email to bjmarjot, M-A-R-G-I-O-T-T, at sbgtv.com with Ballot Battleground Nevada in the subject line. And if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate it if you left a rating and a review. That helps our podcast show up higher in searches so more people can discover the show. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.